Well, good morning, Gateway. My name is Bob, and I'll be your guest uh, speaker here for uh, the unforeseen future. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be back and to see you guys. And I feel like everyone is a little sleepy this morning, maybe. It's a little dark and cold, so hopefully we'll kind of get you going. Uh, I show you that video because uh, every time I watch it, I think of one word. I think of the word transcendent. I don't know if you're into the word transcendent, but I have been lately. It's kind of been a big word in my vocabulary. And, and the idea is that God is transcendent. Every time I watch that video, I imagine God looking down, right, with the bird's eye view of the world and, and the world that we live in that seems so big, that seems so impossible for God, really is so small because he sees us from, from a transcendence. That word transcendent is a word that simply means, you know, beyond the range of normal human experience, uh, beyond normal uh, human limitations. It means something that is independent of the world that we are tied to, and that, that's God. God is transcendent. That's one of the words we use to describe him, and it's an important word, and maybe one that we don't think about a lot, but when we talk about God as being transcendent, he, he's come down to the world, he has walked among us, he lives in our heart, but he's not tied to this world. He's above this world, he's, he's beyond this world. We, we use the word sovereign sometimes as an outcropping of his, of his transcendence. That is, God is sovereign, nothing can frustrate his will. God can and will accomplish anything that he sets out to do. Uh, here's something I was thinking about this week. God is transcendent, and the salvation that he offers us is transcendent. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Your salvation is not, uh, it's not physically attached to you. It's not dependent on your circumstances. It's not dependent on your performance. Literally, your salvation is being guarded by God in heaven, and nothing can separate you from the love of God because of what Christ Jesus has done for you. And so our God is transcendent. And we're gonna talk about that, why that's important. Our salvation is transcendent. And what he offers us, things like joy, are transcendent. And when we forget about the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God, that's when we start to become stressed by the things going on around us. That's when we start to become anxious and, and, and we begin to lack joy in our life because we forget that we have a God who is transcendent, who is above all and beyond all and sovereign over all. And to remember this, because God knows that we live in a world that sometimes that we're surrounded by stuff that's hard and challenging and difficult, and it's easy to forget that we have a transcendent, sovereign God. So God has given us his word. He's given us the Bible to remind us of who he is and to remind us of what he's done. And that's why it's so important to memorize scripture. Uh, I think, as far as I can remember, the first passage of scripture I ever memorized was Philippians 4, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Some pretty common verses, you probably know them as well. Uh, I became a Christian when I was a freshman in high school, and the concept of memorizing scripture was very foreign to me. And that first summer after I became a Christian, I went to summer camp that our church was putting on. And at summer camp, they did like a lot of camps do. Um, they formed us into teams, and we had competitions, and you could get points. And at the end of camp, if your team won, you got some, some prize, whatever it was. And one of the ways that you could get points for your team was to memorize scripture that the youth pastor had picked. 
perfect. And so, you know, maybe you get a million points for memorizing a passage of scripture. And even if you didn't want to memorize a passage of scripture, you'd do it for the team, right? There was a lot of peer pressure. It's actually brilliant on the part of a youth pastor to give people points to memorize scripture because those kids have no idea when they memorize that living word of God what it can do to them. And, and I'll, honestly, I had no idea First passage many years ago, Philippians 4, 4, these words have stuck with me and I have remembered them daily. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I got, you know, 50 points or 1,000 points for memorizing that passage of Scripture. I don't know how long it took me, if it took me 20 concentrated minutes. I can tell you this. Those are some of the best 20 minutes of my entire life because that passage has stuck with me every day in the good times, in the bad times, in the hard times. When you memorize the Word of God, it's just always there. It's always propping up, coming up in your mind. I can remember a couple years after I memorized that passage, my best friend was driving home one night, hit by a drunk driver and killed. And I can remember that night when I went to see him, you know, the viewing, <laughs> hey, he's there in that coffin, it's the open viewing, I go there, I cannot believe that he's gone. And I can remember just sitting there and I remember these words coming into my head, rejoice in the Lord always. I remember thinking how crazy that is. How crazy that God would say to us that we can rejoice always. Be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. Remember uh, about a year after that when I decided to move out of my parents' home and go to Phoenix and go, go to college and, and I'd have to pay for it myself and I didn't know how I was gonna do it, but I knew God was calling me to do it. And so I can remember it's a six-hour drive from, from Orange County where I live to Phoenix and I can remember the whole way, like just rejoice in God always. I don't know how it's gonna work. Rejoice in God always. I don't know how I'm gonna pay for it, right? Like pray about everything. Don't be anxious about everything. I, I remember after I graduated from college and I for the summer I took a job at a church in Oakland. I took a job at a place I had never been, at a church I'd never been to, doing a job I'd never done before. But it was just really clear God wanted me to do it. I remember driving from, from Phoenix to Oakland. Again, like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. God is saying, be anxious for nothing, right? These words just keep coming up in my head. Don't be anxious. Just pray. Just pray about it. Just, just take it to God. I remember moving up to Portland, starting seminary, uh, hanging out with Christy. I remember feeling like I should marry this girl. Like we should get married, be, you know, before she figures out that I'm not good enough for her. I need to ask her to marry me. And I just remember at the time, like I was a part-time youth pastor, full-time student. She was a student. Again, I'm like, I don't know how to pay for this. I don't know how this is going to work. But I remember just like, don't be anxious for anything. Pray about everything. I remember my first youth pastor. I remember coming here to Gateway. I remember, I've told you this before, but when I first came here, I'd only preached a couple times, and I had no idea when I came here how nervous preaching would make me. And every Sunday, I would be in my office, on my knees, sick to my stomach, every weekend, and this verse would just come. Rejoice in God always. Rejoice in the Lord always, even before you have to go preach, even when you don't feel good. Choose. It's a choice. Choose. If you're gonna go up and preach anyways, and I can remember like just thinking this, if you're gonna do it anyway, why not enjoy it? If you're going to follow God in this, why not enjoy God in it? 
don't be anxious about it. Pray about it. Remember a couple years after I came here, our oldest son, who was not quite two years old at the time, was diagnosed with a kidney disease. We were told that we, you know, they didn't know if he would make it or not. We spent months uh, at OHSU and Dornbeckers. I remember night after night just, just crying out to God, calling out to God. I can remember one night in particular being by his crib and uh, just being, I just remember being broken. And I remember at that point, because it was one of those points in life where you want something so badly and you can't make it happen. You just cannot make it happen. And I remember thinking in that moment, like, I can make a choice. It felt weird, but it was like God was saying, you know, you can make a choice in this moment. You can choose to trust me and you can choose to rejoice. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's a choice that you can make. Why? Because our circumstances do not dictate who we are. It is our transcendent God and his transcendent salvation and the transcendent joy that he offers to us. That 20 minutes of effort, that 20 minutes of memorizing a passage of scripture has stuck with me every day of my life. The irony all these years later is this. When I memorized Philippians 4, 4 through 7, I didn't understand the context of the passage and let me just tell you, the context is huge. The context is part of what makes that passage so incredibly important. We are going to take uh, 25 weekends to go through the book of Philippians. We're calling it Joy Transcendent. It will probably be the end of March, I think, when we're, when we're done with this. And the sun will once again come out, it will stop raining, and, um, you know, the weather will get better, and we'll have lived through the winter, and we'll be done with Philippians. But Philippians, when you, when you read most commentators on Philippians, they'll tell you that Philippians is about joy. It's about joy, and when we say joy, I don't just mean happiness. We mean, we mean a transcendent kind of joy, a joy that isn't connected to our circumstances. It's, it's a strange kind of joy when you consider who wrote the book and where they were when they wrote it. And so we're going to talk about that today. And uh, the book of Philippians starts this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers, that's the pastors and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray right now as we open up your word that you would do what I cannot do, that you would teach us, that your word would sink deep into our hearts, and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So we're going to look at a couple things just to get us started today. We're going to look at the, the servants, and, uh, and we're going to look at the saints, and then we're going to wrap it up and kind of tell you how we're going to go through this series. So it starts this way. Paul begins by talking about the servants. Here's how this amazing book, four quick chapters, um, start. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Timothy is a guy we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. Paul's the guy we're going to talk about today. Uh, Paul was like Timothy's spiritual father. And uh, so we'll look at that relationship in the weeks to come. But we're going to talk a little bit about Paul. Now we actually know quite a bit about Paul. More than a lot of characters that we know in scripture. Uh, we know that when he was born, his name was Saul. We know that he was born to um, Jewish parents. We know that he was a Roman citizen. 
We believe that he was probably born about 10 years after Jesus Christ was born on this earth. So when Jesus had his ministry, his public ministry, um, Paul would have been in his early 20s during that time. We don't know, but there's a really good chance that Paul heard Jesus in person. He wouldn't have liked what he heard. Uh, there's a chance that he could have been part of a group of people that condemned Jesus to die. Probably not likely, but he was most likely in the vicinity at the time. We know that he was um, a, a Jew of, of Jews. We know that he had the, the best rabbis as teachers when he was growing up. We know that he moved through the Jewish ranks of leadership very quickly and became a Pharisee at a very young age. Uh, Pharisees were powerful religious people. There was a lot of status that was attached to that. Um, you had a lot of authority and you were usually pretty wealthy and this would have been, this would have been Paul. Uh, Saul. We know that he hated Jesus and we know that he hated Christians. This becomes very clear because the first mention of Saul is in Acts chapter 7 and you may be familiar with the story. The, the church, uh, Jesus has ascended to heaven, um, the church has been born, people are becoming Christians, um, churches are, are cropping up in Jerusalem and um, there's a, a deacon board, the very first deacon board in the very first church, and there's a guy on the deacon board named Stephen. And Stephen is a guy who likes to preach. And so one day, this deacon, about a year after the church has been formed, Stephen is preaching the word of God, and he ends up um, presenting the gospel to a group of religious leaders of Jews, and they do not like what they're hearing. They are so mad. They are so angry. And this is some of the same people at Jesus Christ crucified by the way they decide they have to get rid of this guy just like they got rid of Jesus and so we read this they they cast him out of the city and they stoned him just a terrible awful way to die they pick up stones and they throw them at Stephen until he is dead and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time Saul is mentioned in scripture. So Stephen is murdered and the people don't want to mess up their nice, their nice coats while they're doing this. So they lay them down and, and he's kind of the coat keeper. He, he's there and he's kind of clapping and approving of what was going on. Tells us in Acts 8 and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so Saul sees an opportunity and he begins persecuting Christians. There's, there's no other way to put this. He, he hates Jesus so much. He's so convinced that Jesus was a heretic, that Jesus was not God, that he thinks the best way he can serve God is to actually torture and imprison and kill Christians. And this is what Paul is doing. He's been given authority to go into the houses of suspected Christians um, to investigate them. If he finds out they're believers of the way, which is what they were called, he could have them tortured. He could have them put in prison. Many of them um, escaped Jerusalem. They grew up in Jerusalem, but they fled for their very lives. They got out of there because of the persecution that was, that was going on. And this is what Paul is doing. Now, Paul realizes that Christians now are escaping to other parts of, of the territory. And so he wants to go after them. It's not enough that he's torturing them in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem. He wants to go after them. A lot of Christians have gathered together in Damascus. So he goes to the high priest, and the high priest gives him letters of authority that would allow him to travel to Damascus, and when he gets there, to get some of the temple guard and to break into homes. And if he finds evidence that someone is a Christian, he's allowed to handcuff them, and to bring them back to Jerusalem where they will go on trial. And who knows, they could suffer the same fate as Stephen. So he gets a team of guys and he's on the road. It literally says he's breathing murder against Christians as he's on his way to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, it tells us this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice that was speaking to him. Now, the people who were with him didn't see the light and the people who were with him didn't hear the voice. Only Saul saw this and heard this. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Now, he doesn't mean Lord in the sense of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't know who it is. He just knows somebody who can suddenly make him blind and knock him off his horse is somebody he should be respectful towards. And so he says, I, you know, I don't know who you are. Who am I talking to? And the voice says, I am Jesus. These are huge words, by the way. This is a mind-blowing experience. The person you are persecuting. And so this is an, this is an aha moment, if you will, for Saul. He thought Jesus was a liar. He thought Jesus was a, was a lunatic. He thought that when Jesus was crucified, he died and he stayed dead. He didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't believe he was God. Now, so he goes out and he's killing Christians and he thinks he's doing God a service. Suddenly, he's having a face-to-face -face with Jesus and his whole world is turned upside down and he realizes that the whole purpose of his life was wrong. That the guy, that, that this person that he thought was a lunatic is actually God, that he rose from the dead, that his claims were true. You can see how this is an absolutely kind of upside down moment for Saul. So much so that his friends have to take him to Damascus. He's, he's blind now. He cannot see. They take him to Damascus. They put him in a room and they leave him there. They think he's freaking out. And for three days he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. He knows, he knows he's got a problem. His problem is he has been killing people who are worshiping the Savior of the world. He knows he has an issue. So for three days and nights, no eating, no drinking, he's got to get this figured out. Meanwhile, there is a disciple in Damascus um, nearby named Ananias. And uh, Ananias is a follower of the Lord and God appears to him in a vision and says, hey, down the street there is a guy named Saul. You've probably heard of him. He's the one who's been murdering all your brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I, I need this guy, uh, so I need you to go over and lay your hands on him and then he'll get his sight back and all will be cool. And Ananias is like, yeah, no thank you. <laughs> I'm not, I know that guy, he is a jerk. He's killed some of my friends. There's no way I'm going over there. And so God says to him, you know what? He's my chosen instrument. Uh, he'll be suffering for my name's sake. And Ananias is like, oh, well, why didn't you say so? Sure. <laughs> so he goes over there and he lays his hands on Saul. And Saul gets his sight back. And immediately he starts proclaiming the gospel to Jews around him. So he goes from killing Christians to trying to convince people to become Christians. He, he goes from trying to destroy the church to trying to plant the church. And he gets baptized, and so he begins to live for Jesus Christ. But he has a bit of a, of a problem. 
You see, he grew up studying the word of God and this man is brilliant and he's an expert in the Old Testament. The problem is he now realizes he doesn't understand the Old Testament at all. Because the Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. It all points to Christ, why we need him and what he will do for us. And if you think that Jesus Christ isn't God, then you don't understand the Old Testament. Suddenly he realizes this, so he leaves. He goes out into the desert for three years. He engages in intense study and he develops what we might call, theologians would call a new bibliology, a new understanding of scripture in light of Christology. In other words, he relearned scripture with Christ around the center of that. When he does that, and it's three years, by the way, of an intense study. He comes back to Damascus. He begins, he begins preaching the word of God boldly, and the Jews who are there cannot stand it. They want to kill him. He used to be on their team, right? And then he, now he's on the other team, and they actually come up with a plot where they're going to assassinate him. Not the last time that they'll do this. The disciples find out about it. They want to get him out of town, but they know that people, spies, are watching at the front gate. So one night in the middle of the night, they come up with this plan, and they lower him over the city wall in a basket. Right? How mission impossible is that? Right? So he's like, they're let, you know, letting him down. I don't know. I just imagine like he gets out of the basket and he's going towards Jerusalem and he's like, you know, I've lived a pretty cool life, right? I, I mean, I grew up in prestige and I, I, I got all these accolades and I got this title and then I met Jesus Christ and I turned it around and I went to Bible college and now I'm following God. I got let out of a basket out of a town. I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I can go to heaven now. He ends up going to uh, Jerusalem and when he gets there, and this is so great, when he gets there, none of the Christians there will have anything to do with him because they're convinced he is a spy. They're convinced that he is undercover and his goal is to get into the church and to write everyone's names down and then he's going to arrest them all and have them all thrown in prison. <clears throat> so Paul, Paul goes to Jerusalem and the first weekend he's there, you know, he kind of pulls his chariot into the church parking lot and, you know, they, they won't help him find a parking spot. So he has to park, like, you know, over on F Street. And then he comes in and, like, nobody will shake his hand and nobody will greet him. Nobody gives him a bulletin. Um, you know, when he goes over to get coffee, everybody backs away. No one will say hi to him. He comes into church. He has to sit up here where nobody sits, you know, like that. <laughs> and nobody will, and everyone, you know, during greeting time, nobody shakes his hand. And, and so then, you know, he's like, well, man, I must have picked a bad church. He goes to another church next weekend, same thing, same thing. Nobody will have anything to do with this guy. Man, you know, I hope that never happens here. I couldn't help but think about that. You think that God ever brings people to our church who have a terrible, terrible reputation in our community? And we don't want to associate with them. That's, that's what happens here. Anyways, uh, eventually there's a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas is there one weekend and, you know, Saul's sitting up front all by himself. You know, no bulletin because no one would give him one. He's sitting there. And Barnabas is like, this is crazy. And so Barnabas comes up and sits next to him. And everybody knows Barnabas and loves Barnabas. So once he comes up and sits next to him, puts his arm around him, and he's like, hey, I'm Barnabas and I'm Saul. And hey, let's be friends. Everybody feels bad now, you know. And so they all become his friend. Barnabas. Barnabas kind of takes Paul under his wing. Eventually, Barnabas goes to um, Antioch, where he is uh, kind of doing a Bible institute there, and so many people are coming to Christ, so many people are coming to, uh, to be disciples that he, he's like, I need help, and he thinks of Paul. So he sends to Jerusalem, Paul comes to Antioch, they're hanging out there, they're teaching together, they're, they're being this great team for the gospel, and one day while they're there, as a leadership team in Acts 13, it tells us this, 
Now, there were in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. It's a happening place in the church. While they were worshiping one day and they were uh, the Lord and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. That's always a great prayer meeting, by the way. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, I want you to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off and they went on what we call the first missionary journey. And the whole idea with this first missionary journey was they would, they would hit the road and they would just begin traveling from town to town. And their, their MO was this. They would go into a town, uh, they would have a little prayer meeting, they would get themselves situated, and then they'd find a synagogue uh, where uh, Jews had gathered together and they would go there and they would um, talk with them and engage with them and try to preach the gospel to them. And if the Jews would, if some of them would accept Christ, then they would, you know, they'd start to train them up. If they wouldn't accept it, which often happened, they'd say, you know, go away, get out of here. Then they would just go out on the street and find anyone they could, and they would share the gospel with them. And then when they got a core of people who accepted Jesus, they would they'd spend some time with them, they'd train them, they'd pick a location, and plant a church, train up leadership, and then they go to the next city and they, they keep doing this. Now, now, while they're doing this, this goes on for about a, a year. They're traveling around and, and if you know Acts, you know, Peter's out doing some stuff and there's different disciples out and this issue starts to crop up in the church. There's a conflict that comes up. And the conflict is this. Um, Jesus was Jewish uh, the 12 disciples were Jewish. Uh, the 120 were Jewish. And up to this point, everyone who's a Christian, they're all Jews. And if a Gentile wanted to become a Christian, it was kind of a complicated thing. And this is what's happening. At first, Jews are only sharing the gospel with Jews. But after a while, Gentiles, you know, we're Gentiles. Gentiles would sneak in and, you know, how dare them? And they would listen to the gospel. And then during the altar call, like, you know, a, a Gentile would be like, I want to become a Christian, you know, and walk up and baptize me and the Jews would be like they didn't know what to do they'd be like well you're a Gentile yeah well I want to become a Christian well they 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 didn't know what to do so they came up with this plan some of them said before you can become a Christian before you can go to 101 and get baptized uh, you have to become a Jew first so first if you want to become a Christian you have to take Judaism 101 and then it and then it might involve surgery if you're a guy and it'll take a little time and then once you become a Jew then you can become go through the process to become a Christian it was long and complicated there were other uh, Christians who were like, no, you shouldn't have to do any of that. Just believe in Jesus, get baptized, and you know, you're good to go. Now, there, there's two camps. They're arguing, they're fighting about this. So James, who we studied here not too long ago, Pastor James at church headquarters, convenes all the big guys, Barnabas and Silas and Paul and Peter, and they all come to Jerusalem, and they talk about it, and they debate about it, and in the end they decide, you know what, in order to become a Christian, you shouldn't have to become a Jew, and so they, they send them back out to do this, and so, so this time Paul goes on another missionary journey. Instead of Barnabas, he takes Silas with him, uh, Timothy uh, joins up with them after a while. Luke joins up with them. Um, now their, their plan is in the second missionary journey to go on our, they're going to do a reunion tour. They're going to go back to the towns they started churches in and they're going to see how things are going. And so first they wanted to go to Ephesus. So, and we don't know exactly how this happened, but we know they decided we're going to Ephesus and the Holy Spirit said no. Now I don't know how the Holy Spirit said no, but he said no, you're not going there, which is weird to me. I, can you imagine like you get up in the morning and go, today I'm going to go to work and share Jesus. And the Spirit's like, yeah, no, I don't want you to do that. So then they decide, okay, well, we'll go north. And the Spirit says, no, I don't want you to go there. And so finally, they go to Troas. 
Or wasn't there a plan? And while they're in Troas, um, Paul has a vision in Acts 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia, we don't know who he was, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him saying, come to Macedonia, come and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they, they go to Europe. First team of Christians we have any account of going to Europe. They, they land on European soil. They go to Philippi. Philippi is this, uh, it's this small city. Uh, archaeologists say there couldn't have been any more than 10,000 people at the time. Washougal's a small town and we're a lot bigger than Philippi was at the time. Small town, but very important. It was a, it was a hub, if you will, because a very important highway passed through there. Not Highway 14, but you know something like that. A very important highway that passes through town. And it was a commercial hub and it was a military hub as well. So a lot of people coming and going. And so Paul and his, his team get there and they uh, kind of set up camp and they spend a few days praying and then they want to go to a synagogue. This is their MO. This is what they do. But there's no synagogue in Philippi, which is kind of an interesting thing. In order to have a Jewish synagogue in your town, all you needed was 10 devout um, Jewish men. 10. In a city of 10,000 but there's not 10 devout Jewish men. So there's no synagogue in town. Paul can't go there. So one day on the Lord's Day, they wander down by a river, by a water source, and they find a group of Jews down there who are worshiping the Lord. Um, they're all women. They're by water, which was typical for baptisms and that kind of stuff. Paul goes down there. Uh, so first missionary encounter, it's, it's not an unofficial place. It's down by the river. It's with a group of Jewish women. And Paul begins to share the gospel with them. And it tells us this, one of the women who was there who, who heard him was named Lydia. Um, she was from the city of Thyatira. She was a, a merchant, a seller of purple goods, that is, um, of cloth, uh, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart, and she believed, and she was baptized along with her family, and the, the church is born in Europe. It's so great. And so now Paul begins with Lydia and with his team, and they're, they're going around, and they're, they're sharing the gospel, and there was a, a girl in that town who was possessed by a demon. And this demon gave her the ability to, to tell the, foretell the future. And so she had uh, some, some owners, because she was a slave, and they made money off her, off people paying. And she began to pa uh, follow Paul around and Silas, and she would declare, she would yell, these men are servants of the Most High God, Listen to what they're saying. And that sounds good, except she's following them everywhere they go, and every time Paul's trying to preach the gospel, she won't shut up, and she keeps talking and keeps saying this. And finally, the text actually says that Paul gets so annoyed that he turns around and he casts the demon out of her. Right? So that's just a good thing anyways. The demon gets cast out. That's all cool. But the owners of the slave get very angry because they've just lost an income stream. So they have a confrontation with Paul that, that starts a riot in town and Paul and Silas end up getting um, arrested, stripped down in front of this crowd. They get beaten in front of this crowd and then thrown in to prison. Now they're in prison and their, their feet are shackled to the ground and it's midnight. You, you've, you've heard the story. It's midnight and they're, they're wounded and they're bleeding and they're shackled and they're hungry and they don't feel good. They, they followed God 
They followed God to Philippi. They did what he said, and this is what they got. Like, what would you do if you were up at midnight, broken and bleeding and rejected and fastened to the floor? Well, they start singing praises to God. They're like, hey, you know, we ought to, we ought to have a hymn fest. <laughs> so they start singing out to God in the middle of the night in this prison, which is weird when you think about their circumstances, right? I mean, sometimes we find it hard to come to church and get in a good enough mood to sing songs exuberantly. But imagine that you're in prison. Imagine that, and they're singing out. So it's in the middle of the night, and suddenly there's an earthquake. You probably know the story. There's an earthquake, and the earthquake opens the doors of the prison cells, and the chains, the shackles fall off their feet. Right? By the way, that's a weird earthquake, right? The building doesn't fall down, but the shackles come off, and the doors open, and uh, the, apparently the jailer was asleep, and the earthquake woke him up, and when he wakes up, he thinks that the prisoners have escaped, so he pulls out a sword to kill himself, because this is the way it worked if you were a Roman jailer. If your prisoners escaped, you had to forfeit your life. And you would be better off doing it yourself. So he pulls out the sword because he thinks they're gone. He's going to kill himself. And all of a sudden he hears Paul yell, hey, dude, don't do it. I'm right, I'm right here. <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. Right? Who, who doesn't go anywhere? Who, who's in prison and it's unfair and the doors open, the shackles come off and they don't run? Who does that? Same guy who's singing praises to God at midnight. And this is so impactful for this jailer that it says he, he brought them out and he said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved, to be like you? And they share the gospel and he gets baptized and he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually they go on their way and they continue planting churches. Uh, they go on a third uh, tour after a while, planting churches again. Fast forward about 25 years after Paul comes to Christ. Lots of stuff have gone on in his life that we don't have time to talk about. But Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's recognized by some Jews from Asia who do not like him. And so they get a mob together, and they attack Paul. They're, they're, they want to kill him. There's some Roman soldiers nearby who jump in because their job is to keep the peace. They try to get everybody away from Paul. They end up arresting Paul for his own safety. They pull him out of the situation. And due to some political stuff going on, two years later, he's still waiting for a judge to hear his case and make a ruling. Two years later... And because of some stuff going on with some attempts on his life, he ends up appealing to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen. And so he has to be taken as a prisoner to Rome. It's a, oh man, it's a crazy story. You should read it sometime in Acts. They, they get on a boat. There's a huge storm. Everyone thinks they're going to die. But Paul, they're all throwing stuff off the ship. And Paul's like, yeah, it's going to be fine. And there's a shipwreck. They end up on an island. They're collecting wood. A snake comes out and bites Paul. Everyone sees it's a poisonous snake that instantly kills people. And so Paul sits down. You know, they're all around the fire. He's been bitten. They're all eating chicken wings or something just watching him waiting for him to die and he never dies you know right so he shares the gospel and you know it's a great thing and then there's an assassination plot on him and and so eventually he gets he's he's in Rome he's been there now for four years he's been in prison for four years and he writes Philippians four years in prison four years shackled to the ground and he writes about joy rejoice in the Lord Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. 
And this is what he says. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't identify himself as, a, as an apostle, which he was. Kind of a big title. Paul doesn't identify himself as a missionary, as a church planter, as a pastor, as a reverend. He doesn't identify himself as the author of 13 New Testament books. He hasn't written them all yet, but he's written some of them. That's kind of a big deal, right? When the Holy Spirit moves you and you write scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't identify himself as any of that stuff. He calls himself a doulos. He calls himself a slave. That was a, a word of humiliation, by the way, in those days, to say I'm a, I'm a doulos. It was a person who was owned by someone else, uh, someone who was subservient, someone who was dependent. But this is Paul. See, Jesus died for Paul. Jesus sought Paul. Jesus intervened in Paul's life. Jesus saved Paul. Paul surrendered his entire life to Jesus, his entire life. He surrendered his sin. He surrendered his accomplishments. He surrendered his schedule, his finances, his plans, his career, his everything. He's Jesus' slave. And that's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. We'll look more at him in the weeks to come. But he's writing this to the saints. So I just want to mention this because this is important for us. He says in verse 1, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So he, he's writing this book to saints. Hagios is the Greek word there, and it's, a, it's actually a simple word. It means something that's set apart, something that's separated. Sometimes it's translated as the word holy, but essentially the word holy, we think of it as, as a moral word, but it essentially means something that was taken out of something and placed over here. And that's what Paul's saying is essentially what a Christian is. And he's writing to all the saints. He's calling everyone in the church at Philippi a saint. Every one of them. All of the saints. Because a saint isn't a special class of, of Christian. Every believer is a saint. Because every believer is set apart by God and for God. Paul doesn't call them saints because they're perfect. As we'll find out, some of them are not perfect. In fact, none of them are perfect. Uh, he writes to the church in Corinth that they were saints and they were far from perfect. Because your saint status has never been based on your performance, it's based on what Christ has done for you. And so if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Now that's a little different. I, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in a town called La Habra. And it was predominantly Catholic. And at the center of town was a Catholic church called Our Lady of Guadalupe. And everyone went to Our Lady of Guadalupe, except my family, apparently. Uh, I never went there, never set foot in those, uh, inside of that building. Uh, but all my friends went there, everyone went there. Even people who you would never suspect were Catholic went to Our Lady of Guadalupe. And one way that you knew that people went to Our Lady of Guadalupe was um, they would have a little saint bobblehead on their dashboard of their car. Do people have those here? That's a really big deal when I was growing up. And you'd go in their house and they'd have a little statue of a saint somewhere in the house. And, and they would have those, you know, maybe in the garden outside kind of thing. And they would have these saints. Because in the Catholic Church, a saint is actually a really big deal. So to be a saint in the Catholic Church, and it's, it's actually changing right now, but traditionally the way it's been is, first you had to live a pious life, and you had to be recognized as somebody who was a very pious, very religious and holy person, and then you had to die. So you couldn't be a saint while you were alive. You had to die, 
And then um, somebody had to nominate you for sainthood. Somebody had to say, you know, man, he was a really great guy and I just think he should buy, uh, be a saint. So you'd send that to your priest and if your priest thought, hey, this is worth looking into, they'd send it to a cardinal, to a bishop. They would uh, get an investigator and they would investigate your life. They'd go interview people and, you know, talk about you. And, and if they felt like, hey, there's really something here, uh, then they would forward your name to the committee and, and then this is where it gets really hard. Then you would have to, um, you would have to perform three post-mortem miracles. So after you were dead, you'd have to work three miracles. I mean, it's hard enough to work miracles when you're alive, right? But you'd have to do this when you're dead. So you're dead, you have to work three miracles, they have to be attributed to you, has to pass investigation. If you were managed to be able to do that, then your name goes on to committee, eventually it goes on to the Pope, they sign off, and you're a saint. Now here's what Paul says. Actually, sainthood is very simple. There's just one step. Believe in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus... You are a saint. You are set aside for God. So he's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, they're all saints. Now, there were, I love it. He's like, and there's, there's overseers, which we think of as elders and pastors. And there's deacons. There's a leadership team. But I love how this is not really written to them as much as to the people. Just it's written to the church. By the way, it's written to you as well. Because all of you have your, your faith in Christ Jesus are saints. This is for everyone in Christ Jesus because the gospel is not about what we do for God. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And what Philippians is going to teach us is that Jesus is God. That Jesus is part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, that he existed in eternity past in heaven. But he let go of his rights and he came to this earth. He humbled himself to seek sinners to serve sinners, to play the role of a servant where he died for us. And when we trust in Jesus, we become a saint. Like you could put that on your stationery, on your letterhead. You could sign your emails, you know, St. Bob or St. John or whoever you are, because if you are in Christ, you are, you are a saint. So this is Paul. Paul has an amazing story. Hated Jesus, pursued by Jesus, saved by Jesus, gives his life for Jesus. Do you know that if you're a Christian, you have an amazing story too? And your story is just as amazing as Paul's, believe it or not. Because Jesus had to intervene for you. The same Jesus who died for Paul had to die for you. He had to come for you just like he came for Paul. He had to rise from the dead for you just like he had to rise from the dead for Paul. He had to save you. He had to guide you. He had to sustain you just like he did for Paul. And you are a saint. You are not what other people say about you. You are not your GPA. You are not your job title. You are a saint. And you have a story. And here's what I want to tell you. If you are not here this morning amazed by your story, then you need to think about your story. Because there is a God in there who is amazing, who is transcendent, who sought after you. So I want to I wrap this up by just mentioning something. And that is, well, something, actually, the something. So here's what we're going to do in this series to kind of wrap this up today. Um, 
I, I, when I wrote this series, I did what I always do. I kind of laid out all the messages uh, over a period of time and kind of outlined the messages, and that'll all change. But I actually have everything kind of laid out for 25 weeks. Um, and then I did something I'd never done before. I decided to take a day and go back through every passage and boil every single passage down to um, something to know and something to do. Every passage is going to have something to know. I'm going to have these upside down. Something to know and then something to do. In other words, it's kind of the so what. All right, so Paul was a great guy and, and had an amazing story, and so I'm a saint. So what? So what does that mean? So just to get us started today, I want to just kind of get you going in that idea. And on the back of your notes, we have those somethings for you. So here's Paul who's given his life to Jesus. And he ends up in prison. And he's not asking God why or God, where are you? Or this isn't fair. He's not bitter. He's not complaining. He's writing a letter. And the letter's about joy. In verse 2, he says, grace and peace to you from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to talk about grace and he's going to talk about peace. This is the foundation. Grace is simply God's gift to us. He says, God has given you a gift. It's, it's grace. It's salvation. You didn't earn it. He's given it to you. And because of that, you have peace with God. Grace and peace. And then he goes on and says this, I, I thank my God. Now this is next week's passage, but I just have to cheat and just read it to you really quick. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. And this is what he says, in prison, chained to a floor, making my prayer with, with what? With joy. How in the world could Paul be joyful? He's in prison. He's lost everything. Here's why. Because Paul knew that he belonged to a transcendent God. And a prison wall means nothing to God. And he gave Saul, Paul, a transcendent salvation. And he empowered him with a transcendent joy. And this is what God is offering to you. A joy that is not dependent on your circumstances or what happened this morning or didn't happen this morning or last week, it isn't dependent on any of those things. So, let me give you something to know and something to do, and we'll be done here. Here's something to know. Like Paul, every one of you have an amazing story. You have a story that required Jesus to come, to die, to rise, to pursue you, to woo you, to save you, to lead you, to sustain you. I don't know if you feel that this morning. I don't know if you feel that special. If you feel like, wow, Paul was a, I, yeah, he's a great guy, but me. See, this is what I want you to understand. You're a saint. You mean something to God. You have an amazing story. If you are a Christian, nothing can separate you from the transcendent love of God. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can separate you from your salvation, from God's involvement in your life. You are a saint. You are a child of God, and, and you get heaven. And so what Paul is going to tell us is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's telling us to make this choice. I, I read an article this last week. Uh, I get email with, past, with articles written for pastors. And um, I was reading an article this past week written by a guy, and it was about pastoral counseling. So this happens sometimes. People, you know, give you a call and say, hey, I'm struggling. Can I get together with you and get some pastoral counseling? A lot of pastors get those calls. I don't get a lot because 
I, most people don't find me comforting. And so, you know, I don't get a lot of those, but sometimes people do that. So this was some advice. They're saying, hey, if you're a pastor and somebody comes to you and they say, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed. Here was what the guy said. He's like, like, just be genuine and be authentic, which I'm all for. And then he said, and don't offer them any cliches. Don't offer hurting people cliches. And they gave some cliches. And one of the cliches that he said was, hey, even when you're suffering, you can always choose joy. He said that was a cliche that a pastor should never offer. I remember reading that and going, that is not a cliche. That's actually the word of God. (laughs) That's actually what God says to us. God says it's not a cliche. Joy is always available to you no matter what you're going through. No matter what people have done to you. No matter what news you get. This is not a cliche. This is something that our transcendent God is always making available to us. Something to know. You have an amazing story that ought to fill you with joy. Something to do. So what do we do about that? I think that oftentimes for us, the problem is we haven't thought enough about what God has done for us. We haven't thought enough about how we got saved, how we got to this point, what God has done for us. So here's your assignment for this week, and I hope that you do it because it will be a great foundation for where we're going. Pick a day this week, pick some time this week to sit down, maybe with a piece of paper on your computer or whatever, and just write down, just ponder your salvation story. What is it? What was your life like? What did God do? Who got involved? How did it happen? How long did it take? How did God save you? What were the circumstances? And then once you do that, take some time to thank God for your salvation story and then tell, tell it to somebody. Tell it to a friend. Tell it to the person you're married to. Tell it to your parents. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your grow group if you're in a grow group. Tell it to them. Rejoice in it. Enjoy it. I think this is such a great place for us to start. Philippians is about transcendent joy. The joy of Christ that comes from Christ. And it's transcendent. So it doesn't matter what your circumstances are this week. It doesn't matter your schedule or your finances or your health or your career status. God offers you a joy that is bigger than anything you will face in this life. So let me ask you this question. Where do you need to choose the transcendent joy of God today? Because it's there. It's there for you if you will choose it. Let me pray for us.